Are you wondering if you can get a better mortgage deal and you're not sure where to start? Whether you're a first-time buyer or you're looking to remortgage, we're here to help you get answers. Just head to witch.co.uk for expert advice. Welcome to the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm your host, Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. Everything that we do online, if you think about, you know, all of these things being a series of locks to your personal data, mm-hmm. every time you reveal a little bit over here, then that lock opens. And if fraudsters are able to do it enough, they can build up and create a virtual you. It's quite a regular complaint we hear from identity theft victims who feel like the law is to some extent keeping them in the dark on how far the identity theft has gone in their particular case. Imagine your wallet was stolen back in 2019 and yet now in 2023 you are still being impersonated and defrauded as a direct consequence of that theft with no way of knowing when it will end. Identity fraud can go on for years with the same victims being targeted repeatedly and this week we are going to discuss why it happens and more importantly how it can be stopped. And I'm joined today by which investigative journalist Faye Lipson and consumer rights expert Martin James. Hello both. Hello. Hiya. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, shall we start things off then with Faye? Would you mind telling us what exactly do we mean by identity fraud? Yes. So essentially, this is when somebody steals your personal information and then uses it to obtain either a financial product or an account or a service. So um, traditionally, it's associated with bank accounts and credit cards. But in reality, fraudsters can actually obtain almost anything in their victim's name, including car insurance, for example, online catalogue accounts for retailers such as Studio or Next. We've even seen dating app profiles, social media accounts, mobile phone contracts, even gambling accounts. And even more extraordinarily, you can register a company on company's house with somebody's name as a director who has no idea. So there's a huge variety of different types of identity fraud that are being perpetrated right now. Wow, scary stuff. And Martin, if we rewind a bit in terms of how your personal details could be stolen. So this could be physically like from a stolen wallet or bag or digitally from scam emails, texts. The list goes on, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does, yes. And I'd just like to say to anyone who's listening today, we're going to be talking about kind of many things that will touch in the worst case scenario, but there are solutions to this. So please don't listen to this and think you're all doomed, or if you've clicked on a link that you've ruined everything forever. The most serious types of identity fraud, which we will talk about as well, they aren't that common. Most of us, though, will encounter some of the lesser things which are designed to get into our bank accounts or get hold of our passwords. Now, there are lots and lots of ways that fraudsters and scammers will try to do this. And we've moved on a long way from, you know, those old questionable emails from princesses in foreign lands asking us to, you know, transfer to let money rest in our bank accounts. Although they still do pop up now and again. I definitely am still getting them (laughs) to mine. I don't know about you two. (laughs) They still do. No one emails me, so I'm loving it. (laughs) Any bit of company. But um, it is one of those things where email fraud has got very sophisticated. And there are lots of different ways in which, you know, these scams work. I often find that the most effective ones are the ones that are designed to catch us out, kind of like split-second frauds. So if you get something through from, say, 
PayPal, you'll get a very convincing looking email and it will suggest that a transaction has happened. I just got one recently that said I bought um, a submachine gun, which was an interesting choice. However, it's that kind of thing that makes you panic and think, well, I've not bought that. And then you click on the button and that's when it takes you through to a fake site. So there are lots of things that are designed to fish. This is known as phishing. But there are other scams as well um, that involve, you know, you're being contacted over the telephone. And then there's a whole range of information that's out there online. Now, the one I usually say to people to watch out for is, you know, on Facebook, I know nobody uses Facebook anymore, but on Facebook, you get lots of things about personality tests, you know, what Harry Potter wizard are you and all of those things. Some of them are innocent, but a lot of those things are designed to farm data from you. It's the same with photographs. It's all being used to train facial recognition software. So what might seem like a little bit of fun online actually might be about getting bits of information from you, even the way that you look. Yeah, those questions like pets' names, obviously. They wouldn't ask your date of birth, would they? But they might ask questions that are kind of linking to that, I suppose. Yes, everything that we do online, if you think about you know, all of these things being a series of locks to your personal data, mm. every time you reveal a little bit over here, then that lock opens. And ultimately, if fraudsters are able to do it enough, they can build up and create a virtual you. So that's everything from, you know, your passwords, from your mother's maiden name, to the things that you like and that you're interested in. Now, a lot of companies use this information. It's known as big data. I hate that phrase. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of companies legitimately use this data as a way to sell things to you. And that's why you'll suddenly find that if you've been talking about crocodile ties to a mate, you might suddenly get advertisements cropping up here and there because, you know, whatever's listening in. But in other ways, this is how scammers also kind of find this information. It's all about tricking us or doing a little bit of, you know, illusionary-based magic to kind of get us to hand over information. And all of that allows a profile to be created on its most basic form, that is used to get into your bank accounts, to go online to shops, and to spend everything as quickly as possible. But at its most complex form is actual identity theft, in which a fake you is created and then used to either take over your accounts or to borrow and take out a huge amount of borrowing that can actually have a massive impact on you for years to come. Oh, a fake virtual you. This does kind of feel very apt <laughs> considering, you know, we're in Halloween month. It does feel like the stuff of horror films, yeah, doesn't it? It's Black Mirror, isn't it? I don't, it's very dystopian. Sorry, everyone. There is hope. Don't worry. We'll get to that. But before we get there, Faye, scammers, of course, they are always coming up with new ways to seal information. And what about the number of cases? Is that too on the rise? I'm afraid it is, yes. So according to data from CIFAS, identity fraud was on the rise enormously between 2021 and 2022. So it soared by 23% just between those two years. And they had more than 277,000 cases reported to them. And that actually accounts for two thirds of all fraud cases reported to them that year. So it's an enormous problem. And they've described it as unprecedented. And one of the things they've pointed to as having driven that vast number is a huge array of phishing emails that circulated in that year during the height of the energy crisis, essentially, which claimed to be from people's utility providers or from Ofgem, the regulator, and offered people deals or grants to help them if they were struggling. And people quite naturally clicked through on the links in some of those and were taken to web forms, which requested lots of personal info, financial info. And they've described these particular emails as a rich seam of information for threat actors. 
And can we kind of, you know, bring it down to earth and real people, how they've been affected and hear some of the examples you've come across? Sure. One of the most striking examples that I've seen is the case of a gentleman called Carwin Roberts, who was out on a Christmas night out four years ago, and his wallet was taken in a bar, and it contained his driving licence and bank cards. And since then, imposters have basically been using his identity to do all sorts of things. There was an attempt to obtain a loan in his name, somebody signed up to an online catalogue account, but most significantly, somebody created a fake Facebook profile with his name and details and location and has been posting dozens of fraudulent listings for quite high value goods, things like drones and graphics cards, which simply don't exist, tricking people into sending money. And then the real Carwin Roberts gets accused, gets the blame for it. And it's been nightmarish and there's no sign of it having actually ended yet four years later. Gosh, that's awful, isn't it? You know, scamming one person and making it seem as though they're then scamming more people. It seems kind of endless in in that way. Yes, it's horrific. So this gentleman's actually had people turning up to his mother's house looking for him to confront him for um, uh, scam sales, which he has no Mm. responsibility for. And in a different case that we've worked on at which another gentleman has been a victim of a series of fraud since 2019. A few betting accounts were set up in his name. And one of these was actually funded by an imposter bank account that was also set up in his name. Now, these have all been closed, but in the intervening years, he's been checking his credit report regularly, which is absolutely something you should do if you're a victim of fraud. We'll get onto that in a minute. And he's been finding that there are still soft searches regularly on his credit file using terms such as poker and Vegas, which leads him to think that there might be as yet undiscovered accounts elsewhere that somebody is still using his details for. So he's had to resort to quite a novel use of a a service that's actually a tool for people with gambling addictions called GamStop. He's registered himself on there and that's going to prevent further accounts being opened in his name but sadly won't do anything about any accounts that might be open right now that he doesn't know about. And one of the weirdest things about this problem is that if you're a victim of this type of fraud, you won't actually be able to find out what info the fraudster used when they were trying to obtain the account because companies will use data protection regulations to say that that's not actually your data that's been submitted by somebody else. So you struggle to find out what's been stolen and uh, it can be very frustrating for victims. That is quite weird, isn't it? And actually something feels quite off about that to me, you know, that companies would quote data protection regs when asked for info relating to people who are ultimately committing crimes. Yes. So in effect, what I understand from speaking to companies is that because the personal data has actually come from someone other than the victim, it has to be treated as somebody else's data. The victim has no right to access it, even though accessing it would tell the victim which of their own details the fraudster had stolen. And it's quite a regular complaint we hear from identity theft victims who feel like the law is to some extent keeping them in the dark on how far the identity theft has gone in their particular case. Well, we'll soon talk more about what needs to be done to stop all of this. And that includes how companies may need to step up. But first, Martin, have you come across any interesting cases of identity fraud? Well, I certainly have, uh, Lucci. And again, you know, just to remind everybody, these are very, very extreme examples. I have been around forever. So over the years, you are going to kind of hoover a couple of these up as well. I used to work for the financial ombudsman. So I used to see a lot of cases that came through to them. And I worked for a number of high street banks in their head offices as well. And some of the 
the cases over the years, the more extreme ones, fortunately, we have a few more checks in place now, which should prevent these things from happening, but never say never. But um, I've seen somebody whose house was transferred into someone else's name and then sold. Was that result? How was that resolved? It was ultimately resolved, but it was a very complex legal case indeed. There was another case of this that actually happened a couple of years ago um, that was quite widely reported at the time. Sadly, going back 10 years ago, I saw about three or four cases where that had happened um, because it's creating a virtual you to, in effect, change the data of the mortgage and the deeds and actually transfer these things over. Now, I should emphasise as well, this type of identity fraud only works because of incompetence Mm -hmm. with businesses and an abject failure to conduct checks. But it's not unheard of as well, you know, for fraudsters to actually, in the past as well, to take out second mortgages or to take out additional borrowing against Mm. other people's homes as well. Now, again, I said to everyone, please don't worry. This is very dystopian. In the eventuality that something like that should happen, which is exceptionally rare, there is always an audit trail. So it's impossible to take out borrowing and that documentation to be lost. To be honest, if they've lost the documentation, (laughs) it's not going to be easy for them to hold you to it anyway. So there will always be a paper trail. There will Mm -hmm. be people that you can follow that back to to find out what's happened. But it will require an in-depth investigation. As Faye said before, though, one of the, the more troubling aspects, particularly in this very angry world of social media that we live in as well, is increasingly you find that when people's identity is stolen, it's not that they are necessarily going to get ripped off. It's that they become the conduit for further mm. scams. And just think of, you know, the number of people who contact you and say, oh, my email's been hacked or ignore these messages or ignore these social media posts. Actually doing that is a lot more effective for fraudsters because it gives them a whole new range of people who they can then go out and pursue and see if they can actually get some quick frauds in as quickly as possible. And we also see this again, you know, with fake apartment listings. Mm. So there are lots of different ways that these things can work where innocent people can be caught out completely to no fault of their own. But there are things that you can do and there are ways that you can actually have this blocked. I love your example about the gamblers. I should have known this, but I completely forgot. If you have a problem with gambling or if you you know someone who's a problematic gambler, you can go through the Gamblers Association website. There's loads of other other links as well there. And you can self-diagnose as a problem gambler. But of course, you can use that tool Mm. uh, because what that effectively does is it stops you from changing your mind and going back and being able to set up gambling accounts. So it's in effect, it's like telling bars not to serve alcoholics. So that's a great idea. So that's a fantastic way to combat a lot of these frauds, which do work by laundering money through gambling. That's a great hack there, it seems like, doesn't it? Well, there's clearly a heck of a lot to tackle here, and I think we should get onto that now. Faye, earlier you mentioned the CFAS fraud database. Can we hear a bit more about what this is and what they're doing to combat identity fraud? Yes, yeah, so this is essentially a massive fraud data sharing consortium. It's got uh, 650 members and that's uh, largely drawn from financial firms such as banks and insurers and loan and mortgage providers. It's also got lots of telcos and other sectors, including central local government, for example. And what they all do is they feed in information about people they think have been victims of fraud and people that they think might be acting fraudulently. And what happens is if a CFAS member receives an application in the name of somebody, they'll check it against their massive, massive shared database and they'll see whether that person is either a suspected fraudster or is 
a victim of impersonation, so it's been marked as somebody that's had their name used without their consent in the past, if they are a victim of impersonation, then they'll conduct extra checks to make sure it really is the person that's claiming it to be that's actually making the application. I mean, this all sounds great in theory, but obviously many are slipping through the net. So why is that? So while CFAS is a very comprehensive consortium of data, there are some notable absences. So it's an advantage really to identity fraudsters that some sectors are either underrepresented or absent. So that includes social media, dating apps, for example, and online gambling. And if they were present in greater numbers, then they'd be able to share that data and more companies would be able to pick up on fraudsters that are operating on those kinds of platforms. So CFAS has told us that no other organisation does more to protect consumers from identity fraud and account hijacking than itself. And this includes an option called CFAS Protective Registration, which we'll get on to in a minute, which you can actually pay for yourself to flag yourself as a potential victim of identity theft. So um, that companies will treat you as if you have been a victim already and they'll conduct extra checks in your name. They've already uh, attracted some of the larger gaming companies into membership more recently and they're hoping others will join as well. And they say that they are working with the wider fraud prevention community to encourage industry standard fraud checks across all sectors and they're looking forward to continuing that work. So they're getting uh, gaming companies on board. What about social media? Do you know anything there? So there are no social media sites joining at present. I understand that they are keen for Facebook and Co to join. And obviously, from a fraud fighting perspective, I think that would be essential. Um, because mm. a lot of, as we've discussed, one of the cases, including Carwin from Leeds, centred very much on Facebook. So we know that identity fraudsters are operating there. I'm always getting what seem like scam messages on Instagram. I don't know about you in DMs, you know, my friends being hacked and then all sorts of different things. It could be like some kind of money transfer they're asking for help, or it could be them saying, you're going to have a a text from Facebook in a moment and it's going to have a link. Can you send me it? I'm collating it all. I've been hacked. And actually that's my two-factor authentication. So, you know, it's mind-boggling, but, you know, social media really really is so essential to get them on board. And Martin, what would you like to add here? You know, government, other big companies, could they be doing more? Well, I think we can be quite bold here, uh, Lucia, because I fully support all of the work the witch has done over the years to highlight these scams. But let's face it, this only works if companies report it and if the whole fraud itself is pursued through the courts. Scamming is actually one of the lowest risk, highest yield jobs that there is there, if we can call it a job. Because you know the number of fraudsters who are actually identified and prosecuted is tiny in comparison to the scale of fraud. But we have some very big issues as well. You know, the government, they are introducing laws, but laws are clunky. They take a long time to go through Parliament. And when they get there, they've often changed and they can even be out of date by the time they arrive. So we have, you know, a range of laws that are currently being introduced at the, at the moment. But the fact of the matter is they aren't tackling the main issues. And one of the biggest issues is these big disruptor companies. It's companies like Facebook and Google um, and the artists formerly known as Twitter and many of these other um, social media sites, which are just basically running rampant and are not being followed at all. The number of scam advertisements, dodgy companies that you see 
on Facebook alone, for example, are shocking. You've reported extensively about the number of questionable firms that are lurking in Google and actually even paying for advertisements. And that's before we get on to, you know, the, the more traditional style of scams. Until these companies are forced to clamp down on the scammers, we will not make much progress because it's their platforms that are facilitating it. And they're also virtually impossible to complain to or indeed contact their press offices, as I know vividly from trying to speak to them on numerous occasions about all of this. So we need to put pressure on our MPs and the people in power to actually tighten up these rules for these companies because at the moment it's still not enough. And this is by far where the bulk of the scammers are operating in the shadows. Well, while we're waiting for organisations to step up, what can we do ourselves? We'll be back to discuss this after a short break. Scammers are stealing hundreds of millions of pounds every year. They bombard us with fraudulent texts, emails and calls. And what's more, their tactics are getting increasingly sinister. To keep across the latest scams, sign up to our free Scam Alert service to help you stay ahead of the latest scams and protect yourself. Go to witch.co.uk forward slash scamalert dash newsletter. That's witch.co.uk forward slash scamalert dash newsletter. Thank you. So identity fraud can go on for years should your details fall into the very wrong hands. And we obviously want to avoid this at all costs. So what kinds of things should we be doing to protect ourselves against identity fraud? So one of the simplest things that you can do this year is basically think about how the fraudsters are getting hold of your information. One of the most common ways this can happen is when people move house. So if you move house, it makes sense to actually contact Royal Mail and actually get the mail redirect for a period of time if there's that transition while you're moving over. And also it, it takes makes a separation between the address and when you live there and when you've moved on to the next place. As a serial renter in London for many years, I've never done that. Don't know about you two, so that's, yeah, okay. I'm also the same. Note it's taken. Just, yes, I've, I've dragged many a suitcase uh, around London over the years, and it, it has actually shown me kind of when you go back and you look at the various properties that you've lived in, it's very, very easy you know, to have lived in 10 places mm. over a short period of time in this day and age. So that's one of the things that you can do. You can acquaint yourself with the three credit reference agencies. Now, a word of warning, credit reference agencies will provide you with a statutory free credit report. It used to be sent to you by post. They used to charge you two quid for the post um, and the stamp. Now it's all completely free and it's online. But as I found out recently when I tried to do this myself, um, just to see how the whole process works, when you're online and uh, you're looking for these reports, you may be offered the chargeable service. That can be up to 15 quid a month. Mm -hmm. um, you do not have to pay for that service. Keep looking for the statutory free report. It's on there. You can check it as much as you like. You just pop in and out as and when. If there's something on that report that you don't like the look of or that you think is suspicious or shows that a fraudulent activity of some sort has occurred, you can ask for what's known as a notice of disassociation. I hate that term. <laughs> don't worry if you can't remember it. Just contact one of the credit reference agencies and say to them, can you put a note on file? This is nothing to do with me. And they will effectively sever that link, which makes things very, very easy. And again, that's free to do. You can usually do it through the actual website. And it's really, really straightforward. But just bear in mind that the three credit reference agencies, they get their information from different sources. So you do need to check all three of them. 
It also makes sense to speak to your bank or go to your bank account details and your credit card details. Things that people forget as well, like PayPal and other e-payment systems. One that throws lots of people is you can actually pay for things through your phone bill. So you might not actually realise that you're paying for regular fraudulent subscriptions, for example, or ridiculous text charges. That's another one that can crop up. So remember to check your online phone bill. Mm. I forgot my password, so I kept giving up on it. And when I actually checked, I've been signed up to two subscriptions that I never authorised or even recognised. So it can happen to all of us. So keep a close eye on the various ways that you pay for things and just check them every now and then. We all hate doing it during the cost of living crisis, Mm. but it makes sense to do so. Gosh, there's a lot that I need to do myself there. Um, And Faye, to protect yourself against fraud when it comes to browsing online, being on social media, everything that makes up our digital footprint, our virtual selves, what should you do here, Faye? So the most basic piece of advice is to have strong, unique passwords for every website. And I know it's very difficult and I know people get sick of hearing it, but it is just so very important because there's technology out there that can guess millions of passwords in a few seconds, runs through an enormous list. And if yours is on there, then they're getting into your account. So it really is that easy. So having strong, unique passwords for every account makes it a lot harder for them to do that. And one of the easiest formats that you can follow is to have three completely random words like cup, laptop, sausage or something like that and you can add in numbers and you can add in exclamation marks make it more complicated and if you find it hard to keep track which let's be honest most people do Mm -hmm. you can use a password manager service many of those are free so that's really the top bit of advice because once they're into your accounts they can get a huge amount of info and use it The other thing I'd say is please don't click on links in emails that are claiming to be from providers or companies or individuals that you know. You don't know if that's legitimate or not. And fake emails can be really convincing. Same thing goes for instant messages, text messages, and avoid phoning the numbers, phone numbers in those messages and emails as well. It's always best to go direct. So come out of the email or message, go into your browser, type Mm -hmm. in the website, go there direct and log in yourself. Or if it's a phone number, look at the legitimate phone number on your bill or some other thing that you can use to verify. Always make sure you're going direct. And I'd also say it's very important to make sure your settings are private on social media. Now, people are a lot better at this than they were in the early days of social media when we all just had absolutely everything on display. People are a lot more locked down now, but there's still a lot of people with accounts where you can see a vast amount of info, even if you're not connected to them as a friend. So do look at that. And another good trick that I was taught by a fraud expert is that you can set up an alert on Google for your own name and see if your name is being mentioned somewhere online. And that can be a good way to get an early heads up if somebody's using your name illegitimately on an account, so a social media account, for example, and get that shut down at the earliest opportunity. That's such a good point, Faye. I think when I found it, it was through the Google privacy um, section. But if you sit and go, and go onto your own Google settings and then just click about really in the whole privacy area, it will come up with that. It will come up with things about passwords. And I now get a reminder whenever one of my passwords has appeared in a data leak, which is a good reminder that I have to change it. And finally then, both Martin and Faye, If you do suspect you might be a victim, what should you do? You know, we've heard many, many horror stories, but, you know, even at a a lesser scale, what, what should you do? So first and foremost, don't panic. It doesn't have to be complicated at all. Think about how money might actually leave 
your account. So in your first instance, you're contacting your bank, your card provider, and any other payment system that you might have. Secondly, change those passwords. Just go through all of them. I know it's a drag. Don't sit there in silence. Put the telly on. Put some music on so you don't feel that you're kind of going through this whole chore. And then pop onto the credit reference agencies and have a look and see what's on there. It's just a regular reminder to keep checking, but don't worry. Um, It's far more important that um, you don't feel overwhelmed. And if you do spot something that's suspicious, report it to the company first. So if you've been directly defrauded, then contact that company and report it. And if it's indirect, if you think that somebody's using a fake you to actually trick other people into handing over money, then look at the tool that they're using to do that. Is it Facebook? Is it a different form of social media? Report it to them and then just make it absolutely clear that it's nothing to do with you. Amazing advice there, Martin. And Faye, is there anything you'd like to add to that? So we touched on it before, but there's an option called CFAS Protective Registration, which is quite affordable. It's £25 for two years cover. And as we discussed earlier, it basically sits on the CFAS Fraud Prevention Database. And anytime somebody searches your name because they've received an application in your name, that company will see that you've got this protective registration. They'll sort of treat you as if you've already been a victim of identity theft, even if you haven't. And they'll do extra checks to make sure it's definitely you that's applying. So it can make genuine applications from yourself a little bit more time consuming. You'll have more hurdles to jump through, but it will keep you a bit safer. There are other services as well, which uh, Martin's touched on, which can be a bit pricey. They're generally offered by um, the credit reference agencies. So Experian's got one called Credit Lock, where you can actually freeze your credit report so that applications for loans and credit cards won't be successful while it's frozen. And that's about £15 a month. And then there's another one called Check My File, which shows you data across all of the four major credit reference agencies all at once. And that's a similar price as well. But these are quite pricey and and really it shouldn't cost you money to Mm. be a fraud victim. So I'm always a little bit reluctant when it comes to these. What you can do is if a company's been at fault for your fraud, so they've opened an account in your name fraudulently, or they were responsible for a large data breach, you can ask them if they will pay for one of these subscriptions for you so that you can get the benefit of that protection. Extremely worthwhile stuff there. Thank you both for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. A huge thank you again to Faye and Martin for coming on the show today and to you for listening to this week's episode of the Witch Money podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please do hit subscribe to make sure you catch our new episodes as soon as they drop. For more money news and advice, find us on social media at Witch Money and online at witch.co.uk forward slash money. And we also have a free money newsletter, which is delivered to your inbox every Monday. To sign up, visit witch.co.uk forward slash money newsletter. This episode of the Witch Money podcast was written and produced by me, Lucia Ariano, edited by Eric Breer, with additional support from Grace Witherden and Matthew Jenkin. Hi there, it's producer Rob here. Now, maybe you're a new listener, maybe you've been listening for ages. Well, either way, if you're finding this podcast useful, then you might also like to subscribe to Which Money. You'll get our monthly magazine packed with tips on how to make the most of your cash, from growing your savings and investments to avoiding rip-offs and scams. You'll also be able to call our experts on the Witch Money Helpline as often as you like to get answers to your money queries. Just visit witch.co.uk forward slash join money. That's witch.co.uk forward slash join money and sign up today.